0: Hello everyone, welcome to Equals, this is Max. Hi everyone, welcome to Equals, this is Naf. We have a great episode for you today on austerity. This dominant policy program that cuts public services, that dismantles the state, and we are seeing in governments north and south the world over. This is personal to me. Most of us in the global south know how our governments are at the mercy of international financial institutions. For instance, the International Monetary Fund. And oftentimes, one of the conditions from these institutions for a loan is to force governments to cut on public spending. We have seen this in Ghana recently, and we are seeing this in Ethiopia. They're finalizing their negotiations right now. Which reminds me, Max, in Ethiopia, when we think of austerity and the international financial institutions, we think of uh, tap water being turned on or off. We are always on edge thinking whether the IMF or the World Bank will force the government to privatise water. So every time there is a negotiation, we ask whether the water is going to be turned off.
1: Certainly, that's been my experience too, that when the IMF visits these countries and tries to you know, introduce a programme of cuts and austerity it's front page news isn't it because it means less money for schools for hospitals and indeed it can mean the water being turned off so it's 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 a critical issue for countries all over the world as we speak
0: absolutely and i would say you know this association between the imf and austerity is, is deeply ingrained in public
1: consciousness now.
0: And this is what today's episode is about. It's about austerity, the history of austerity, why and how it was created.
1: Yeah, we decided uh, rather than take a snapshot of where we are now on austerity, it might be more interesting to look at the history of this idea and a great book that's been written about that, The Longer View. Where did this idea of government's forced to cut back on spending come from? What's the history of austerity?
0: I am really thrilled about our guest today, Dr. Clara Maté. She is an Associate Professor of Economics at the New School for
1: Social Research. Yes, and she's the author of a fantastic book uh, recently released called The Capital Order, How Economists Invented Austerity and Paved the Way to Fascism. So uh, it's the perfect book for today's topic, which we're going to get into today. Great. Let's dive in. Let's do that. So Clara, let's start by giving us a, just a short definition. What is austerity?
2: Austerity is a term that we rarely hear anymore uh, because it's so synonymous ultimately with rational, prudent economic policymaking that we often lose sight of it. The reality is that austerity is everywhere, uh, shaping our lives both in the north and in the south of the globe. And austerity is ultimately a trinity of policies that permanently work to shift resources away from working people in favor of those who earn an income through capital and rent. So um, austerity is not just about the state spending less and taxing more. This is a definition that loses sight of the class dimension and focuses on the whole. If we look at how much the state spends in general, we do not detect austerity. Think about the United States today. The state is spending lots of money um, in in, uh, subsidizing green investment for private asset managers in the war. But at the same time, it is cutting on social expenditures. So we need to focus on where the state is spending away from the people, cutting social expenditures, cutting on employment benefits, cutting on housing, cutting on on schools, on health, you name it, in favor of expenditures that enrich the usual few. The same is true for taxation. It's not about the state's taxing a lot. It's about who the state decides to tax. So taxing people through, for example, larger consumption taxes and constantly not taxing the wealthy, curtailing inheritance tax, curtailing tax on wealth, and so on. This is fiscal austerity, right? Where the state spend and who the state taxes. Then we have monetary austerity in the form of interest rate hikes, that again has the good result for those who are creditors in our society because they make more money as the cost of borrowing increases. But at the same time, uh, the working people have a harder time getting loans and especially lose their jobs because of the fact that interest rate hikes slow down the economy. And finally, industrial austerity, the third element of the Trinity, which is so important, that is about the state intervening to curb the bargaining power of the workers directly by deregulating labor, making labor more flexible and ultimately giving less power to unions. So it's this trinity that works together to um, ultimately shift resources away from people, increase our market dependence and thus ultimately increase our subjugation to the capital order.
1: Can you explain for listeners what you mean by the capital order?
2: Exactly. So this is the element that allows us to rethink austerity as an important feature of capitalism, not just a bug, not just irrationality, but actually a feature that is um, there in order to protect the class relations that are foundational to our economy. So the intuition comes from Marxian analysis and tells you that capital as wealth, capital as uh, GDP growth, um, really is based in our society on a social relation of production by which the majority of us has really no other alternative than to go and sell one's capacity to work for a low wage. So capital as GDP growth is based on capital uh, as a social relation. And this social relation is historical and by definition not natural and thus requires constant protection and this is very clear for example nowadays in the united states in which there's a lot of labor mobilization we know about the automobile workers we know about this the hollywood workers we know about many many strikes that are happening every day many of which we don't even talk about that are indeed demanding for shifts in the relation between capital and labor and it is in this moment of great mobilization That austerity makes a lot of sense for institutions leading the economy, such as the Fed and other central banks or the IMF, because it helps tell people we're sorry, these alternatives you're demanding are unfeasible. You need to just accept the compulsion of the market and to go work for a low wage.
1: And in so doing, I suppose, would increase inequality. I mean, that would be, you know, if there's more for capital, less for Labour, then that would be behind what we see in terms of you know, our eye-catching numbers as Oxfam of how much wealth is going to the top and how that never seems to stop increasing.
2: Absolutely. So the whole point here is to say inequality is the outcome of very specific political decisions that are cloaked under economic neutrality and the way that this is the only path forward. But actually that these uh, austerity measures that are the principal cause of inequality um, globally and also within nations is the outcome of a specific political choice of technocrats in power that is about preserving the foundation of our system, which is the capital order. So definitely we see here how there are short-term costs, for example, a recession. Everyone is predicting there will be a recession. Many countries have already stopped growing. Um, but this recession becomes more clearly visible what is going on if we understand that the logic of our economic system requires the subordination of the majority in order to function smoothly. So that we are willing to increase interest rates and indeed cause a recession because there's something more foundational that needs protection, which is, again, the fact that people Don't complain about selling their capacity to work for a very low wage. This is the basis of capitalism. So the message here is if we want capitalism to run smoothly, people have to sacrifice and the recession and the inequalities that follow are ultimately part of the design of what allows us to um, keep the majority of us in a situation in which there are very little energies to be able to come together think collectively of alternative ways of organizing production and distribution but the point here is that these alternative ways are always present and in certain moment in history they emerge with greater force demands of the workers get stronger the people the majority that suffers from this economic system is uh, awakened it is in these moments um, that austerity is a very very powerful tool to tell people I'm sorry, go back where you came from. You can't demand more because there are no resources and your market dependence increases so that you have no alternative to make a living but having some money in your pockets, which you only get if you go work in exploited conditions.
0: Really critical to understand these things. I heard you say somewhere, which I thought was a great explanation, Clara, that austerity is a tool used to shift resources from the majority to the minority. I I really found that useful to understand better how austerity works. Can we take a step back, uh, Clara, and explore a bit more about the history of austerity?
2: Exactly around 100 years ago, a bit more, uh, in 1921-22, austerity is wielded as a very powerful tool in order to Abolish, kill all of alternative social formations. The capital order looks at how economists get together with uh, policymakers at the international financial conferences in Brussels and in Genoa of 1920 and 1922 to really tell working class all over Europe to step back, stop demanding for greater economic democracy and revert back to an order which is about consuming less and producing more.
0: The history clearly shows uh, the disdain of the capitalist economists, the elites in general, you know, their disdain for the working class or for that matter, for, for the public. But while we're exploring history, Clara, it will be interesting to cover how austerity paved the way to fascism.
2: Thank you. And indeed austerity emerged in the 20s with the idea that uh, for example central banks should be independent because only independent central banks were able to undertake prudent decision meaning anti-inflationary decisions that would indeed cause the suffering of the majority in order to solve the problem of monetary stability. And this connects well with also the story of fascism what you just asked me. So the story I tell in the capital order is that uh, austerity was implemented in very different institutional settings and also in very different political settings. So we see austerity um, fundamentally work very powerfully to disempower working class demands in Great Britain, the cradle of economic democracy, but also austerity work extremely well under fascism, under Benito Mussolini's rule, who came to power in October of 1922. In Britain, it was economic forces, the recession, right, that was induced through interest rate hikes that ultimately increased unemployment and unemployment created this disciplinary effect on citizens who then had to go back and work for wages. That was exactly the type of condition they were trying to get out of.
1: Can I ask you, Clara, about, I mean, obviously, Oxfam works a lot in the, the global south. We work a lot on countries that where it's basically the IMF that's in charge. Um, and one thing they would regularly say uh, and, and would see themselves as different to the IMF of 20 years ago is that, you know, they don't want to do austerity, but in countries in the global south, when you have a lot of foreign debts. You know, there's no alternative. You know, there's this sense in which you know they have to, they have to save money somehow. And maybe we can debate around the edges as to whether we save money by increasing taxes on the rich or save money by cutting services. But the 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 basic point is, these countries are bankrupt. So uh, the IMF, unfortunately, uh, is insisting that they make those cutbacks. I mean, if you were in the room with one of these IMF people, what what would you say to them?
2: I would say that austerity measures um, expose how um, our economic system functions through the subjugation of the majority, especially in the south of the globe. So austerity exposes what is really problematic with our economic system. And while these um, technocrats will have us think that this economic system is the only one possible, Um, I would say that austerity is actually problematizing the fact that we have chosen collectively to live under an economic system that functions only if the majority suffers. So again, there are no policies that are good for everyone because we are in a system in which there are losers and winners. And what austerity does is preserve the winners. So they are not wrong in saying that uh, according to the laws of our system, debt has to be repaid. Uh, but the problem is, do we want to be in the system? And I think in this historical moment, in which it is clear that austerity exposes another problem with our system, which is the fact that there is no long-term vision, apart from the fact that there is a constant conflict between needs and profits, there is also the problem there is no vision. And this is obvious in the climate disaster, but it's obvious in just the fact that Austerity is basically also uh, really literally killing people and um, people are even not reproducing because of austerity. So uh, this is what I would say to them, is that austerity is not a technical, uh, neutral element of this world, but it is a necessity because we imagine our system to the, be the only system possible there are very many alternatives we know to having to pay back the debt that restructuring is a possibility on the table of course it is a possibility that goes counter to the logic of our economic system and thus requires a political will to actually shape up shake up the fundamentals uh, of a system that anyhow is i think um revealing Its contradictory and unhuman face. And so we need to, uh, more than ever today, realize that we need to have a collective political decision to move in different directions.
0: But I wonder, how can we move in a different direction under austerity capitalism? I, I think this is something we should continue exploring. The key message from your book, Claire, is that the success of austerity is in killing the public's imagination for an alternative economic system. And and I find this powerful. Can you explain a bit more about that for our listeners?
2: Yes, thank you so much. Absolutely. This is the core to understand how austerity, again, is not irrational, but it makes perfect sense uh, in the current economic system we've decided to live under. because. Ultimately, the success of austerity rests in the fact that it increases our vulnerability because it makes the majority of us more market dependent. And this means, once more, that in order to make a living, we have to have money in our pockets, right? No one is forcing you to go to work, of course, physically so. But if you don't go to work, you will not make a living. So, this economic, impersonal compulsion that is what holds the system together, is reinforced. And this means it means people have no time to collectively come together, um, even chat with their neighbors about their problems and or, of course, organize any form of uh, collective space to discuss of other ways in which one could organize production and distribution or just ways to push against um, rampant Austerity. So this is really the message. The message is that austerity works to disempower us, to disempower us materially speaking, because we have no time, but also to impa- disempower us uh, psychologically and mentally. And this is where the role of mainstream economics is so central, right? Because not only do we have not very little to live by and thus we need to compete with our fellow workers in order to get the few jobs available, uh, which makes us more vulnerable. We're also convinced that if we are poor, we deserve it. Having us all internalize the idea by which class hierarchies are fair, that poor people are poor because they're not rational enough. They are ultimately not the producers of value, but are parasites that live off of the capacity of others to be um, long-sighted enough to save and thus invest. This is a very, very powerful methodological and conceptual shift that has characterized economics uh, since fundamentally the end of the 1900s and is preserved to this day. And it has deeply colonialized our minds. So as we suffer, we, we do not see the problems being structural. We see it as being our problem as individuals and thus ultimately incapable of associating for a different future.
0: I was thinking, Clara, about the past three years, you know, starting from the COVID pandemic to the ensuing economic social crisis, especially in the North. This has made the public rethink the capital order, no, Um, in the US, UK, and so on. So do you think the austerity measures you've been highlighting, whether monetary, fiscal, industrial, do you think they are being implemented again to discipline the public? So we don't start thinking about alternative economic systems, you know, or these other ways of organizing our social, political, and economic life.
2: Absolutely correct. And I think this is why recounting a history that happened 100 years ago uh, speaks so well to people today, unfortunately. Austerity is more explicit in moments in which people are actually rethinking the basis of our society as the only way for us to live. And yes, I think what happened with the COVID pandemic is a moment in which our political imagination indeed was enlarged by this fact that the states, many states, at least in the north, global north, have overstepped what is usually the boundary of their action. So they've empowered people to see that they, it is, was possible to, for example, uh, get some money to exist without having to go work for an exploited condition and this uh, though scared the elite very much and this is why the whole interest rate hikes began uh, with um, and as a response to greater strike action to the fact that nominal wages were increasing in many sectors before because people had increased their bargaining power with increase of their uh, political awareness of the possibilities out there that were not being explored to the fullest. Speaking about the global South, I think clearly the same is true for Sri Lanka, for example. I followed the, the case of Sri Lanka um, in, in, in depth, and you saw that also there, ultimately austerity, the IMF, the fact of coming back in, really... Um, was in response also to the fact that there had been great um, mobilization from below, right? Grassroots mobilization, people demanding for actual greater political changes in their society, um, the resignation of their president. And so this is not by chance that technocratic institutions decide to wield the powerful tool of austerity, especially in moments in which greater political imagination is spreading amongst people.
1: In your book, you dedicated it to revolutionaries everywhere, past, present and future. And we, we tend to finish our podcast with a kind of, you know, where you might see hope. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about some of the revolutionaries who had that imagination, who, who could think about alternatives, both in history and now, you know, what, what gives you hope? How are we going to beat austerity and finally consign it to the dustbin of history?
2: Thank you. So the book is dedicated especially to revolutionaries everywhere, past, present, future, but um, especially to my uh, great uncle Gianfranco Mattei, who was actually in the anti-fascist resistance in Italy. He was professor of chemistry building bombs against the fascist Nazi. And he was uh, captured. He was tortured. He did not want to speak against his uh, fellow comrades, and um, committed suicide in prison, uh, hanging himself with shoelaces. And he um, killed himself because he uh, really believed that Italy, as many other countries, could see a brighter future and a future that would empower us all to live uh, as humans uh, and actually um, overcome the alienation that is still spreading today you can name many examples of, for example, neighborhood councils in Chile. That's an example my good friend Camila Vergara is very uh, following very closely. Um, the idea of building spaces for greater economic democracy, breaching away from market dependence, because this is the main message of the book, is that austerity is not a necessity Uh, It's a political project that is meant to actually protect what is ultimately fragile. So if the system is fragile, it means that it can be overcome by collective counteraction. And this has happened historically. The cases I recount in the book are about all these experiments in economic democracy happening in the hub of capitalist West in those years. In Italy, the factory councils led by Antonio Gramsci is, I think, of enormous inspiration for the present because it was the idea of overcoming um, the fake concept of political democracy in which we only go vote once every four years and the rest of the time we are just serfs to the laws of the market with instead of an idea of economic democracy, meaning that we collectively and consciously decided on how to produce and how to distribute, and this could happen at the very small levels of workshops and factories, of assemblies in the agricultural sectors, of neighborhoods, places where people gain back their voice, gain back their agency of deciding how they want the resources that they themselves produce be mobilized to fulfill their needs, rather than this abstract quest for value, which is, defining aspect of capitalism. There is a lot to be done. There's a lot of necessity to take back agency that has been taken away from us. It has been taken away from us purposefully. It will continue to be taken away from us unless we discover virtuous examples in history. But also we give, I think, a lot of space to present situations, present experiments that are happening and we just can participate in to see a better future. And I would urge everyone to from the smallest thing, just take action in collectively deciding on one's uh, material and spiritual future.
1: Wonderful. Thank you. That was brilliant. What about the kind of austerity after the Napoleonic Wars? You know, is there any sense in which this goes back a lot further than the 1920s?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it definitely is the case. And it is in line with the idea that austerity is structural to capitalism. So I would claim that austerity is as old as capitalism is. Uh, But it just emerges more obviously in moments in which people demand greater economic democracy, right? So in the Napoleonic world wars, if you think about it, uh, workers were not enfranchised. They could not vote. There was a sense by which ultimately the state uh, was uh, not there to fulfill any demands for the people. It's in moments in which, and that's why I focus on the West and not, for example, what was happening in the colonies. Also, the history of imperialism is all a history of, of austerity. But I think what's interesting to note is the defense mechanism in moments in which people gain enfranchisement, in which moments in which people want to participate into economic decision making. So let's say it was there all the time, but it becomes more obvious, explicit and thus analyzable in moments in which it acts as, as a counteraction to demands for the general public to participate in economic processes.
1: Thank you so much, Clara. That was a fascinating interview. We really appreciate it.
0: Thank you, Clara. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank
2: you so much.
1: Wow. So Naf, what did you think of that then?
0: That was really eye-opening, Max. I really, really loved it. Um, You know, listening to Clara, it made me realize that we should not be underestimating austerity you know, thinking they're just economic policies. It's actually a system designed to control. It's at the heart of capitalism. Um, I was even thinking those with power, it doesn't matter whether you're on the right or the left, they will put the system in place to maintain the capital and social order. So IMF will put the system, for instance, in place to keep those of us in the global south uh, to be subservient to the north. Uh, So yeah, really fascinating interview.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was to me was very interesting. I think another thing for me was I really, it, it was the idea that not all bad things in economics started with Mrs. Thatcher and Ronald Reagan and neoliberalism that, you know, there were some terrible things going on long before then, and that are kind of integral to capitalism. And austerity is one you're going all the way back to the 1920s so i think it was it was that for me was quite interesting they did stop fixating entirely on the last 40 years and think about the broader broader issues yeah it's good
0: yeah definitely and also um you know we should be aware that austerity is alive and well the name might have changed you know governments or international institutions might have stopped using the word because it has negative connotation, as it should. But the policies, the practices are are still being practiced, you know, hiking interest rate or, you know, direct attacks on organized labor, privatization. All these policies, all these practices are still in place. So it's really important for the public, for all of us to be aware of this um, so that we can fight against this system.
1: Well said, Naf. I, I agree with you completely. Okay, fantastic. So that was a great episode and I'm sure we've got many more to come soon. So uh, please, please keep listening, everybody.
0: Hope you enjoyed today's episode. We are always keen to hear from our listeners on the things you want to know or people you'd like us to talk to.
1: Yes, get in touch with us on Twitter. Can we call it Twitter anymore? But anyway, do recommend us, give us a good review, you know, share us uh, with your friends and family and we'll talk to you next time. Cheers, everybody. Thank you, everyone. Bye.